Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Local Europe Edition, recorded in Stockholm on Wednesday the 1st of November 2017. My name is James Savage and with me is Emma Lufgren. This week we'll be bringing you more fascinating stories from across the continent. From Italy, we'll be looking at the reasons behind a dramatic fall in the number of migrants arriving from Libya. We'll ask why and where they're going instead. In Denmark, we'll be looking at why people from other EU countries are failing to use their rights to vote. And in Germany, a virulently anti-Muslim MP is being put forward for a top job in the Bundestag. But MPs look likely to break with precedent by blocking him. So we'll ask what happens next. But this week in general, wherever you are, we've been seeing more of our heroes turn out to be sex pests. How depressed are you by this, Emma? I'm... I'm pretty horrified. I mean, it started out with this whole Harvey Weinstein thing. And for the first few people who kind of got accused of it in in the press, you kind of thought, well, yeah, I kind of always suspected that. But now we're getting more and more names. And it's like, I'm seeing articles about Kevin Spacey, Dustin Hoffman, there's people in Sweden as well. And I keep thinking, who's going to be the next? to fall. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's kind of horrifying. It's, it's all these people who perhaps you grew up with as, as, as some kind of hero or someone you admired and suddenly their reputation's destroyed, which I think it kills a little bit of you as well, doesn't it? It does. Like, I feel like I'm thinking of that actor who was really, really good in that movie I loved. And will my children end up thinking of them as that sex pervert? Yeah. I mean, we've had this, obviously, if you grew up in England like I did, you've been experiencing this for a few years. All our childhood heroes destroyed people like Rolf Harris or Jimmy Savile, who turned out to be terrible, terrible sex pests and have been... uh, and in Rolf Harris's case, were jailed for it. Ghastly, ghastly revelations that came out. And now we're seeing it squared across the world. Very depressing stuff. Anyway, we have other things to talk about today. And we're going to start with Italy. The number of migrants arriving on Italy's shores from Libya has fallen by 69% since July, thanks to a deal that Italy made with the Libyan authorities. But while this might have relieved pressure on long-suffering Italy... There's concern that this is increasing the suffering of migrants. Angela Giuffrida joins us from Rome. Angela, 
Why exactly have the numbers of migrants fallen so drastically? Well, it got to a point in late June where over 12,000 migrants arrived in one week. That was really the kind of final point for Italy in terms of, you know, they'd reached boiling point at that stage and um, with frustration coming, we've not been getting really any help from from the EU because there was meant to be a policy for migrants arriving in Italy to be redistributed across Europe. That clearly failed. So from January up until late June, I think we had maybe over 95,000 migrants had arrived. Italy hit boiling point and was left with no other option but to try and work up a deal with with Libya to, to spend the flu. So now many migrants are being forced to stay in Libya. So what's happening to them there? Um, Well, basically, the deal between Italy and Libya, I mean, firstly, Italy clamped down on the NGO rescue ships um, by making them sign a code of conduct. There are only now two rescue ships still continuing to to operate in in the Med, um, and that's despite Libya also barring them from an area of sea close to its shores. But, you know, this is partly due to the fact that there are fewer ships bringing migrants in. It's not that migrants aren't attempting the journey. It's that when they attempt the journey, they're instead being rescued by the Libyan Coast Guard, which has been trained by Italy to to rescue people. Um, The issue with that is they bring them back to to Libya and they put them in detention camps for, for a week or so and then let them go. And then the migrants essentially re attempt the journey. So it's a little bit of a kind of cat and mouse situation going on there. We know from human rights organisations and from witness accounts from migrants that that when they are in these camps, that they're facing torture, brutality. Many women are raped as well. It's really, you know, the country has has become increasingly violent in in the last few years. So just from accounts from migrants and and, um, NGOs, you know, we know that it's an awful situation. This deal between Italy and Libya, although it's reduced numbers to Italy, you know, it's it's really left migrants themselves in a terrible situation, an even worse situation. And so this is is obviously a really grim situation for migrants who are being forced to stay in Libya. But I mean, I suppose the reason that Italy has signed this deal is because it's had such a difficult time over the last few years coping with the number of migrants coming in. I mean, you've been following this for years and years now. How has Italy coped? And how, can you describe a little bit about about, the, about how the situation has been in Italy? I think on the one hand, you know, Italy has done a remarkable job. You know, there, there, there are quite a few positive examples of um you know, migrants who were living in, in towns that were suffering from depopulation and where leaders have um, taken the initiative to devise integration programs um, to provide them with jobs. And that, that kind of thing has seemed to work well. But at the same time, there are a lot of migrants languishing in reception centres, still living in fairly appalling conditions, waiting to see if, if their request for asylum will be accepted, which, you know, a process which can take years. And there isn't simply, you know, we've got to the stage in the summer where, you know, there were migrants squatting in a building in Rome, you know, and, and for years the authorities had turned a blind eye to that, but then they were evicted. Um, and I think this really exposed the issue of accommodation in terms of the reception centres being being full or beyond their, their capacity. And really, you know, there's a whole army of people who, who are essentially homeless now. And some of those have actually, you know, had their um, asylum requests 
um, accepted as well. So Italy is, is actually granting asylum to some people. It's not just this, this picture that we get in the rest of Europe of them coming into Italy and then going on to Germany or Northern Europe. It, I mean, Italy no, is... No, it, yeah, it's virtually impossible for them, for migrants to move on now because the borders are blocked up in France, Switzerland and Austria. So, so many, many are, are left in Italy. But now more and more being stuck in Libya. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So the migrant crisis still making its presence felt in Italy. Thanks very much, Angela. The far-right party Alternative für Deutschland has barely got warm in its seats in the German parliament, the Bundestag. But it is already the subject of an almighty row. The subject of the row is the party's nomination to the role of deputy chairman or deputy speaker of the Bundestag. Their candidate, Albrecht Glaser, is a climate change denier who's accused of saying that Muslims should be denied religious freedom. MPs from other parties have so far voted down his nomination. Jörg Lüken joins us with more. OK, Jörg, who is Albrecht Glaser and what has he said? Um, he is a, a 75-year-old man who has recently been elected to the Bundestag with the AfD. I think that makes him the second oldest politician in their ranks in the Bundestag. Um, who is he? He uh, used to be a city politician in Frankfurt, not a particularly successful one either. He lost several million euros from the city's treasury with bad investments there and had a rather unsuccessful career as a local politician. He's also a climate change denialist, and he has basically said in April that Muslims should have their right to practice their religion freely taken away from them because Islam doesn't respect the rights of other religions to practice their religion freely. Okay, but if he's such an unsuccessful politician, then why do they want him? Well, you don't have to be very successful to get into the AfD. You just have to want to be a member of their party. <laughs> right. <laughs> OK, so this is a bit of a red rag to sort of the rest of Parliament, right? It's a pretty provocative person for them to put forward. Or is he just a standard, a standard AfD politician? No, I think he's a standard AfD politician. I don't think he's radical in their ranks. He used to be in the CDU, so he's certainly not coming from the far right compared to some of the people who are senior members of the AfD. He's relatively moderate, but he has a position on Islam, which is standard in the party, and he follows a, the same sort of bizarre logic and the same simplistic idea of what Islam is, which other leaders of the party hold, so he's not exceptional. Okay, but... um. So far, MPs have voted down his nomination. So does this mean that his candidacy is doomed? We shall see. Theoretically, the AfD can just keep nominating him. So it's for the role of vice Bundestag president. And in law, it's set in law that every single party represented in the Bundestag can have a vice president. So the AfD have the legal right to that and they can keep theoretically keep proposing him. But if the other parties point out, it seems pretty apparent from his statements that what he is demanding of Islam is against the constitution that enshrines the right to practice your religion freely. If they keep this principled approach, then eventually one would imagine the AfD will have to buckle and try and find someone in their ranks who has a, 
uh, opinion on Islam, which is in line with the German constitution. But let's say he does get through. I mean, is this a big role or is it just mostly a ceremonial thing like, you know, often parliamentary speakers or even deputy speakers are? How big a deal is it? It's not entirely ceremonial. Um, the new speaker of the, so the new Bundestag president is Wolfgang Schäuble, who is one of you know the most influential, significant figures in German politics. And he was given the role, or he was kind of put into the role by the CDU because they wanted a strong voice in the parliament with the AfD, with the far right now being in the Bundestag. The Bundestag president can, has the ability to fine MPs if he sees their behaviour as um, being against the, the, the rules of the Bundestag. Does that he, happen a lot? As uh, far as I know, not, no. But, he, you know, he, he can tell, not speaking, if they go off to- topic, if they behave in a sort of uh, manner unworthy of the parliament. And his deputies are people who he consults with on a weekly basis about order and sequence of of speaking and et cetera in the parliament. So it's not uh, it's not a completely irrelevant role, but it's yeah, and it also has a symbolic importance to to the parties. Okay, so all of this does does this give us a clue at all about how how the other parties are going to handle the AfD in the future in general? I mean. Uh, well, I think it's too early to tell. Even the head of the Muslim, the Central Council of Muslims in Germany said at the end of last week that the other parties should allow uh, Gleiser to become the AFD's choice as vice president. Um, we'll see whether other parties then perhaps change their minds and decide that they, that they will accept his nomination or whether... They will stick to a line of anybody who's who's putting forward views which are against the constitution. We w- we won't support. I mean, it certainly seems at this stage that the other parties are fairly united in not tolerating that. Who thought German politics was boring? Thanks very much for that, Jörg. If you're an EU citizen living in another EU country, you have the right to vote in local and EU elections. But in Denmark, there's a concern that not enough people are using their right to the extent that it might have a noticeable effect on turnout figures. Michael Barrett from the local Denmark joins us now. Mike, why are EU citizens not using their right to vote? Well, the primary reason for EU citizens voting markedly less than Danish citizens seems to be that they don't consider themselves to have a long-term future in Denmark. They moved to Denmark primarily for working. And as a result of that, they don't invest in the country in, in terms of its culture or, or even its language. And for that reason, they don't see local, regional, municipal elections as having the same importance for them as perhaps a general election would. Interesting. Are, are there other kinds of EU citizens who are more engaged in the process? Is there a, is there, is there a sort of distinction between different kinds of EU citizens? I think there probably are, although it is difficult to say for certain without any actual data to back it up. But the third biggest group of EU foreign nationals in Denmark, for example, Germans, um, a lot of whom will have moved here to study. There's also a large Danish minority in northern Germany. A lot of German citizens from that part of Germany moved to Denmark to study at university here. And so those people will have a closer cultural connection as well as reason for living here. They might have moved here to study here or because they have family here and so on. So that group, not necessarily because of their nationality, but because of their motivation for being in Denmark in the first place, would perhaps be more likely to vote in these regional municipal elections, but they do constitute a smaller part of the total number of EU citizens living in Denmark. 
But I mean, if you're in a country temporarily, I mean, surely it's, it's kind of fair enough, isn't it? If you don't go and vote, if you feel that you maybe don't sort of have the right to have the say in, in the country's future if you're not staying there. I don't know, what do you and James and Mike, what do you think? I mean, it's understandable that you might see it in that way. But in terms of rights, I think with something like a municipal election, voting on, on municipal councillors um, and the people that are going to be making decisions that affect local conditions on a day-to-day basis and they affect people that have lived here for two years and are going to be living here for two years more just as much as they affect people that have been here all their lives. So it is relevant for uh, EU citizens to vote in those elections, but perhaps a lot of them don't see it that way and in many cases don't actually know that they have the right to vote, which is something that uh, has been discussed a little more in Denmark recently with the, the regional elections coming up there. Yeah, I was curious about that. I mean, is is anything being done to get them to use the, the right to vote? Is there information about the issues in foreign languages, for example? Uh, yes, I know there has been some campaigning. It's fairly small scale campaigning, I think. Um, there's one local politician in uh, Olbor, third or fourth biggest, it's the fourth biggest city in Denmark, who is a Romanian national who is eligible to campaign for election in the municipal vote, who has based his entire campaign around uh, increasing awareness amongst the EU nationals that they're able to vote and they're able to make themselves relevant in these elections and the issues that affect them are relevant as well. So he has created an entire campaign around this issue, but that's only in one particular location. It's not something that will reach EU nationals across the country necessarily. There is also a, a board or an interest group for ethnic minorities, the Council for Ethnic Minorities in Denmark, which has published guidelines to help foreign citizens um, who want to vote in these elections and don't know how to do it. And those guidelines have been translated into several languages that are relevant for EU citizens. But it's not something that's really broadly known. So it's still on a low, low level, low scale at the moment. Well, as someone who's voted in every single election that I've had the right to vote in, then I would jolly well encourage everyone to go out and do it. I mean, why wouldn't you? I mean, okay, you might not know much about it. Well, just, you know, take your best guess, educate yourself. If you don't want to read up too much, then just vote for the equivalent of the party you'd vote for back home and just but just have a say. I mean, otherwise, yeah, otherwise you can't complain and there's nothing better than having a good, a good complaint. Yeah, I, I'm like that too, but maybe we need to change the entire way we think about elections with so many people moving around and living in, in other countries temporarily and like maybe maybe EU citizens should be allowed to vote in each other's national elections as well, as long as you're a resident there. That would get people engaged. The Brexit referendum springs to mind. <laughs> <laughs> if EU nationals have been able to vote in the Brexit referendum, there might not be Brexit. All right, Mike, this is really interesting. Uh, thanks ever so much for updating us on it. Pleasure. Well, that's all from us this time. Remember, you can subscribe to this podcast in the iTunes store. And if you feel like giving us a rating, we'd be so grateful. Or you can get in touch with us directly on Facebook or Twitter at The Local Europe. But meanwhile, it's hi hi from me. And it's doi doi from me. Ciao.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.